Hi everyone, this is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of StarQuest, with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Now we need your generous financial support to reach new audiences with more of the life-changing and uplifting programming we've been creating for more than a decade. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you are already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you and ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. Every gift counts. Could you give $15 or even just $10 per month? Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas. And remember that your gifts may be tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season. You're listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. Hi, everyone. I'm Thomas Enherho, and you're listening to our Secrets of Dune series, where we're going to discuss the hidden layers and deeper meaning of Frank Herbert's Dune and its various media representations. Joining me on the panel here today is Jack Barazzini. Hi, Jack. Hey, Thomas. It's good to have you. And we finally, finally get to discuss the Denis Villeneuve <laughs> movie. <laughs> and uh, yes, man, I'm... do we have some thoughts. <laughs> I think it was, it was funny. We were looking forward to this. <laughs> yeah, we were sitting here like... <laughs> starting to talk about it before we could get the podcast started it's like wait 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 let's record because we don't want to talk too much about it before we get into it um so i don't know about you jack but um i've been trying to avoid talking about it with anybody other than my son who's the one that went to see it with me and um Mm -hmm. you know i know we've been skirting around it in our chat program that we have uh to talk about (laughs) when to organize the chat and everything so when when to organize the podcast so um i'm gonna give give you the first go uh what was your initial impression of this movie it, I'm going to say it exceeded my expectations of what I was looking for. Um, I, I guess the best way to describe it would be like the first time you watch the original Lord of the Rings movies or Star Wars, like seeing something that's like just fantastic. And especially it's, it's always fun to see it when you've, when you've read the book, like seeing how much they brought in from the book and like getting to visualize that in a way that's actually faithful to what Frank Herbert was doing. Right. So I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I was I was super impressed. It uh, it did everything I wanted it to. Like, you know, like you said, it it did exceed Mm -hmm. my expectations. And I watched an interview with um, with Denis Villeneuve afterwards where he was talking about the Gom Jabbar scene. And um, he was saying that he wasn't making this for any audience other than the most difficult audience himself as a 13 year old. And I was like. (laughs) Yes. And, and I felt that so much. And I really like walking out of the theater. I was just, I felt like the, the things that were in my head when I read this book, the many, many times that I've read it mm-hmm. really came across on the screen. And not only, not only did they come across on the screen, but then they were also fleshed out in a way that I hadn't thought about. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, that was the thing that was so impressive to me because I, this is, this is a, a work of literature that I know like it right. is in, in my bones is how much I know this, you know, and, uh, and that scene, the Gom Jabbar scene, when, uh, mm-hmm. when Jessica starts quoting the, the litany against fear, oh my gosh, I got chills. I cried. Yeah. I actually cried because it's so touching to me. That's such a part of like my ethos and right to see it come through. Just amazing. 
but yeah so we'll get into a, a lot of it <laughs> yes <laughs> sure um but yeah so that's I, I loved it i was blown away uh my son he read the book he's really into sci-fi and stuff he had trouble getting past the goofiness of it and, mm-hmm. and the way he put it was uh very early on he kind of lost the thread and then just couldn't get over the kind of overblown uh fantasy nature of it so yeah you know it moved away, it, this movie moves away a lot from sci-fi and into that kind of fantasy realm which mm-hmm. is good because that's that's dune in a nutshell right but um he had a problem and it, it started when um <laughs> when leto is having the talk with um paul and mm-hmm. says that you know well i was i wanted to be a pilot and he got into his head poe dameron <laughs> because that was oh. the, the actor <laughs> and and it became funny suddenly and then he couldn't get through <laughs> through the rest nice. of the movie without thinking about all the other actors and where he's seen them show up <laughs> <laughs> i didn't even i didn't even connect that because the movie does such a good job of telling the story like and the actors all, like the casting was fantastic oh, um man it was incredible like i didn't even i wasn't even thinking about it in terms of oh that's oscar isaac or that's uh jason Momoa. it was like it's duke leto and it's uh duncan idaho yeah no it, very very much so the 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 scenes that everyone is in mm-hmm. and, and the way that they portray their characters uh just absolutely amazing josh brolin as Gurney Halleck, just he's perfect. Oh my! Oh the the battle scene when he turns around and smiles at them and to encourage them mm-hmm. to move forward. I was like, I I he every single scene he was in he stole one hundred percent. Yeah, he was amazing. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, so. L- let's go into that. Let's talk about the cast and the characters because that's I think uh, I think that was that's the thing that's going to get a lot of people to go see this movie um, who mm-hmm. might not know the source material very well or may have only been exposed to the 1984 you know david lynch film and go like, right what are we in for here um so we have big names we have um oscar isaac uh we have uh you know uh jason momoa we have uh, mm-hmm. uh josh brolin uh zendaya's in it which is kind of a, a, an odd but very good choice so yeah uh and then a lot of like really classic actors too. And that's, you know, actors that are not such big names, but are really truly great actors or in foreign mm-hmm. films. Um, and so that was, that was really neat to see. And then um, the one that, that I love is one that, that has been working with uh, Denis Villeneuve uh, a few times and it's um, Drax. <laughs> from, oh yeah. <laughs> from, uh, from Guardians Dave of the Galaxy. Batista, yeah. Yeah. Dave Bautista is, uh, is in it. And, he's he's such a great figure because like i think p- people peg him as drax but then he he's got some amazing acting chops yeah and that's actually something that i saw in an interview with him he was talking about he was really glad to be able to play uh raban in this because he feels like everyone sees him just as the comedic relief character from mm-hmm. guardians of the galaxy so he was excited to actually be able to play not only a serious role but like a sinister role right which is really like the opposite of drax yeah, no, no, it was really, it, it's really good. And I thought he does, he pulls it off very well, despite there not being a Fade Rautha, which not yet, yeah, concerning to me. I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> there's a few scenes here that are missing. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they do that moving forward. But I think that, I think it'll probably uh, work out fine. I do like, um... Stellan Skarsgård as the uh, the Baron was fantastic. Mm. That was that was great, and it was g- good to finally see 
him portrayed on screen where he's not like comical because in both the 84 movie and in the miniseries, he's laughable and over the top and you can't take him seriously as a villain. Right. And even, even in the book, he comes across as more almost like a caricature um, in, in some parts, the way he's portrayed. And so I think that, I think that works fine for a book and like the style that the book is written in, but I think it's very hard to translate that to the screen and not have it just be comical. Mm-hmm. And I think that this movie did a fantastic job of like keeping all the signature things, you know, about the bear and like he's enormous and greedy and power hungry and all that, but making it actually feel sinister and not coming across cartoonish. Definitely. Yeah. And we had a we had a long talk about the repulsor lift technology because that was one of the things that bothered me about the 84 film was the, the mm-hmm. floating baron. Right. And I think you, you pinned it where it's like it's the comical nature of it that. Mm-hmm. moves you out of the movie it like takes you out of the the feel of the movie when you see him floating around but in this one it, it served a dual purpose which i thought was really neat it first off it it's the repulsor lift tech is there because he's just so big that he can't carry himself around mm-hmm. but you notice that only the sadarka have have that technology as well and so it kind of right. sets the baron into this realm of like well he's wealthy enough that he can afford as a luxury, this technology that's used for the most elite warriors in the empire. And that, right. you know, it kind of, it tells a story the way that it's put together and that it wouldn't necessarily be able to tell if you just saw him, you know, being lifted by it so that he could walk. Right. And they also, he also uses it cinematically in a, in a much more interesting way than it's ever been done in the other movies is to like show like the Baron is like this imposing presence. that's looming over mm-hmm. everything, but not floating around doing backflips like he does in the, uh, oh <laughs> David Lynch version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I, in the, the scene where he escapes the poison was really mm-hmm. well done like that. There was so much tension to it and you felt the, the tension, even in his own people of like, Mm-hmm. wow this guy i thought i thought this guy was scary but now i now i'm like truly like i'm gonna have nightmares about yeah the fact that he can survive through this in the way that he has so yeah i definitely an excellent choice and um then i think that i loved the way that he treated leto in this as well because mm-hmm. it wasn't i think in the book you get a feeling that that he's removed from who Paul is in a way mm-hmm. that can be harmful to the relationship they're supposed to have. And that's yeah. one thing that you can see that uh, Denis Villeneuve took that, that chance on making sure that they had a very clear connection between the father and the son and a, yeah. and a father and son, not just Duke and heir kind of way. Right. Yeah. I liked that a lot. He, he gave him more humanity than he had in the, in the book in terms of relating to his family, which mm-hmm. I liked. I also, uh, I really liked the like the bullfighting motif that they used. That was cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bringing it back to that that uh, the history of the family and because right. they do talk about the bull a lot in the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I think the the weakest character for me um, was the Doctor Ua character, but it's just there was yeah. so much. You know, there was there were so many different people to focus on. It was hard to really dig deep into all of them. That would be my my biggest criticism of the movie is that it wasn't long enough, to be honest. Right. <laughs> like and after seeing like if you look online, like they filmed the part where he gives where Dr. U.A. gives Paul the Orange Catholic Bible. 
they filmed the big dinner scene with all the the water uh sellers they even filmed um which was actually my biggest disappointment was not seeing uh gurney halleck plays balisette and sing right i was really looking forward to that um but i guess they filmed all that and it got cut just for time. So I'm really hoping that when the movie comes out on DVD, we'll get those directors. Yes. I don't mind five hours. Fine. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah, I'd be okay with that. <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> I will watch five hours of that movie for sure. Yeah. That's that. There were a lot of things that were kind of glossed over or skipped. Mm-hmm. And it was, I totally understand for the time. And they did a very good job of, of telling the story that needed to be told. Um, right. And, you know, so, so since we're talking about that, I think, I I have to give huge props to the start of the movie because it starts out of order. And yeah, to me, that was perfect because it reminded me this is different. This is not the book. Mm-hmm. Look for it. Look for what it is, not for what it's not. And right. It was such a great reminder to have right at the beginning that we're going to tell the story. We're going to be true to the story. We're going to tell the story, but we're going to tell it in a different way. And that was awesome. Yeah. It also, um, it did a good job for as much as I felt like I kind of wanted more meat in the front end of the story, just because I knew all that stuff was actually out there from the deleted scenes, but it does a good job of telling the story in a way that people who are not familiar with the book are still able to pick up on it. Like, uh, my mother-in-law watched it with us and she was not a particularly big fan of it. Science fiction and fantasy aren't really her thing, but she was able to follow the story and know mm-hmm. what was going on without us having to like stop and be like, okay, these are who the Sardaukar are, et cetera. Like she was able to pick up on the story and follow without any issues. So it, it does a good job of being a movie unto itself where you don't have to read the book to understand the story. Right. And it can be really difficult because I think one of the things about the story is that it's a gateway into this world. Um, and if you haven't read it 20 times, <laughs> there are a lot right. of things that you can like, what is the Lance rat? It's mentioned all over the place, but they never really talk about, what it is to flesh it out, you know? So, you know, why, why is there an empire? What are, what is the deal with these people that are, you know, warping space? You you don't get Mm. all of that information. Even in the book, you don't really get all that information. You just kind of have to infer it. And we had an interesting moment with my wife where we watched the first star Wars movie again, recently for the, for our star Wars podcast that we do. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got done watching it and she turned on and she looked at me and she said, you know, I feel like I appreciated this movie a lot more this time because I actually know what's going on. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I was like, excellent. All of my Star Wars nerdism is coming home to roost. Nice. Yay. <laughs> but yeah, she she really just never liked Star Wars at all. She just mm-hmm. put up with it and has gotten more and more into it as the kids and I have gotten more and more into it. And so nice. watching that first movie kind of she felt it better this time. <laughs> nice. So I know you said you uh you took your son to see it. Did he have any of the um, of that attitude that I've heard from some people who they've watched Star Wars before getting into Dune? Did he feel like that this movie was like a ripoff of Star Wars? Because I've talked to a couple people who have watched Star Wars but have never read Dune, and they went to see it, and they're like, "This is, just seemed like a more boring version of Star Wars." And I'm like, <laughs> "This this came no, before Star Wars. No, yeah, this is, this is what Star Wars is." Based on. No, he uh, he knew, so he had read the okay. book, and I, you know, we talk a lot about literature and, and the and the influences so he's actually been involved in a lot of the conversations that we've been having on the oh, podcast nice. so you know he watched the 1984 movie with me and um and all in the jadarsky's dune uh documentary mm-hmm. too so he knows kind of the history that that's going into it so nice. uh, no but i think that he 
I think he did feel the slowness of it, which okay. is uh, that's something I heard coming out of the theater, too. And it was interesting because I, I heard some people talking about the different technologies that they that they saw on screen. And it was it was fun to hear people talking about the like the shielding technology and stuff mm. uh, that it was either someone that that had never been exposed to it before and they were trying to rationalize it with the person that they were with or it was someone uh, i heard another conversation so two conversations about that actually that had read the book and was trying to fill in the gaps about you know the nukes can't be used because right. or, or the you know the, the lasers can't be used because of the shields and they cause a nuclear explosion and all this kind of stuff so it, it's interesting how much was left out of the movie too and so it is very accessible right. but i think there was a lot that was uh just for the sake of time and for the sake of not mm -hmm. being able to explain things you, you couldn't put on screen. I did also hear uh, one, one criticism I've heard from like four people now who've seen the movie and who've not read the book was they're like, so I can, I can take all the suspension of disbelief with the sci-fi technology and the worms and the spice and all that, but I cannot believe that 10,000 years in the future, even though it's actually 20,000 years, um, there's a character named Duncan Idaho. Like I've heard four <laughs> people mention his name and like, <laughs> I, I it never really occurred to me, but I guess it's kind of kind of out of place. I don't know. Well, I, that's that's always been my wife's big complaint about fantasy and sci-fi lit is that the names are so weird. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's that's the one name she likes out of all. <laughs> I mean, you got nice. a you got a character named Paul, right? Paul's yeah, your main character. Jessica is a very vanilla name for <laughs> right uh, for a sci-fi thing. Yeah, I thought I think the. One of the things that stood out to me, though, was the um, the absolutely beautiful technology. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the ship that the Reverend Mother arrives in with the, the first uh, envoys when they're oh, yeah. no, transferring it. It's just it's a gigantic donut, basically. Yeah. And then <laughs> it opens up and it's carpeted. And that's not something you think about in science fiction, but like these that's exactly what these kind of people would be using right and it does that thing that i always look for in science fiction where the ships are not aerodynamic like it's nice mm -hmm. to see spaceships that are just big massive chunks because they don't need to be aerodynamic right. and <laughs> i really like the design of the uh the highliners for the the spicing guild where you can see like they don't really talk about how the space is folded which is which is fine, but I like how they do it in this movie where it's like you can see through the ship, right. like you see the other planet and then it like comes through. It's like opening like it's almost like it's in two places at once. So I thought that was really cool how they did that. Yeah, it was very, and it's very clever. Yeah. And it's all it's understated, which is nice to see. It's not like the very over the top warps you get in the new Star Trek movies. Um, That was like just in terms of the production design and the way the movie was made, it was very understated, which I appreciated because I feel like we've gotten, and this is a lot with like the Marvel movies or the newer star Wars movies where everything is just so over the top and the technology is just so over the top. It's mm -hmm. nice to see technology that feels advanced. It feels alien, but it doesn't feel, it doesn't strain belief the way like Iron Man's like nano suit does. Right. Right. Or, or that the, kind of thing. Or the hyperdrive uh, bombing in um, Star Wars. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I got to pick on that. Uh, oh, man. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I, I totally agree. I think that, um, you know, you're looking at, at humans in the wildly distant future. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things uh, my son and I talked about also is like the ornithopters, which 
were portrayed fantastically like yes you know, that was almost great. like insects which is exactly what they were supposed to look like and um he's like well why why would you make a a a, a thing that flies like a bird if you have all this technology and i'm like why wouldn't you if you have all this technology right it's mm-hmm. at that point overcoming the mechanical issues isn't the problem it's like well what can we do with the design now <laughs> right and that's what i uh that's what i appreciate about um a lot of that is that you see like the um the carryalls like they have like giant balloons attached to them like there's not mm-hmm. a bunch of magical repulsor ships like you see in a lot of sci-fi where it's just it just flies and there's no reason to it right they actually put thought into that design yeah and and the and the dangers of the design too right because mm-hmm. things you know that's one of the things about the movie is that stuff breaks down or the story itself is stuff yeah. breaks down and it has to be repaired and that's costly and it's difficult and, and dangerous and that's how we see you know the the first worm attack uh that's that's what we get exposed to. So, right. Yeah. I think that's, um, I, I, I was super impressed with all of the, all of the design. This, the interiors were gorgeous and that's what you need. It's because mm-hmm. it's, you know, they're nobles. They're the richest people in the universe. They should be, they should be very extravagant with everything that they have. Right. I do like also uh, the first time you see Gady Prime, like that opening shot of it, that is straight out of the concept art for uh, the Jaredowski movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's just pretty much that exact same thing. So I like that they went with the H.R. Geiger design for that. Yeah. Lots of good throwbacks too. That's, that was another thing that was really great about all of it. Mm-hmm. So I do. Well, oh, good. No, you go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, I do really appreciate though that the uh, the great Highland bagpipes have survived into the distant future. I was when I saw that I was like, yes, <laughs> yeah, that scene that scene was incredible, and and I, I was I I was struck by it because I was like, oh, that's perfect, and I didn't realize why, and I went back and read that portion of the of the novel, and it's because they the, he took the literal definition of what they said is that they arrived on Arrakis like conquerors, mm-hmm. and I, I hadn't thought about what that meant in the sense of like they're wearing battle armor and just right. that, that small interpretation difference. Right. Like I, I just thought, well, they just came down and people cheered for them, and, but that's mm-hmm. not what it was. They arrived in battle gear as if they were conquering the planet. And I was like, ah, oh, that's a really great way to, to look about and think, look at it and think about it. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was cool to see how much thought went into how to portray things in the book without over like over explaining it. Like a mm-hmm. lot of it was just done through visuals and like that's, it was like a, like a well-made, a truly well-made movie, not just here. We're going to like tell you what's going on. The whole show don't tell thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was really good. And, and, and I like that too. And I think that more movies need to do that because they need to give their audience credit that they can keep mm-hmm. up, you know, and that, we don't need things spoon fed to us every step along the way because we can keep up. Right. <laughs> Especially when it's really good quality film like this. Right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, um, okay. So besides the Gom Jabbar scene, because that scene is just gorgeous and amazing and was actually the first scene that they shot. Apparently. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. That's what he said. It was like, he knew at that moment that he had cast all the right, all the right actors for the for their roles uh but besides that scene what are some scenes that stood out for you in the movie um well i really like uh 
I like the thought that went into the relationships between like Paul and uh, Duncan Idaho, like that first scene where he flies in on the ship mm-hmm. and you get you like you get their whole relationship in that one scene. Like, and I really liked that. And I also liked how that scene does a good job of setting up the fact that Duncan is a good pilot. So later on in in the movie, when he gets in the ornithopter, it's not just like, oh, this random, you can just fly just because like it's already established that he knows how to pilot. Right. So I liked how they did that. Um, I liked how many of the scenes are just straight out of the book, like the scene with the, uh, what's it called? The hunter seeker. Mm-hmm. I liked how that was done. I liked, um, and I like when they meet kinds for the first time, cause that's just mm. dialogue straight from the book. Um, my favorite thing, though, was how they portrayed Paul's prescient vision in this. Like, mm, I yes. wasn't sure how they were going to do that, but they did it in such a creative, clever way. Because in the book, the way it talks about it is that time is not linear. It's not like he's just seeing the future. He's seeing all the possible futures and it's jumbled up and mixed up. And so they have the whole motif with the uh, the Chris knife um, throughout mm-hmm. the movie. And I, it wasn't done this way in the book, but I really, really like how they establish that connection between him and Jamis. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so this is going to, they're not, they're not going to do this until the next movie, obviously. But so, you know, he sees him in his visions and Jamis is teaching him the ways of the desert, which is what happens when he has to kill him in right. the, the fight. But so I, I really like, cause when in the next part, when he says I was a friend of Jamis, it has, I think it has more weight than it does in the book, to be honest. Right. No, it really does. I was so, uh, I was wondering who that character was going to be, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. having read the book and you get to the visions and there's no name attached to him in the vision. And then you meet him and you're like, wait a minute. What? Yeah. No. And, and then, so that juxtaposition of like, this is the thing that's going to initiate you into the ways that you have to have to be mm-hmm. so good. Such a, such a great scene. Yeah. And yeah. It, just all the understated, uh, things that went into like the the interpretations of the book that come out in the movie so well. And one that totally threw me because I, I had never made this connection. I don't know. Like I really am like kicking myself that I hadn't, but the, the connection between him sticking his hand in the, in the box for the gom Jabbar and uh, the, the words the Reverend mother says to him about, you know, a human will, wait for the captors to come back and then kill them to remove a a challenge to the to their species mm-hmm. right and then the connection they make between that and paul being trapped by his fate because they just have these few little oh, lines nice. that kind of bounce between that theme and that he is being trapped by his fate and so he's waiting for his hunters to come back so that he can remove them as a threat to humanity and i was just like oh my gosh i had never made that connection and it just popped out on the screen (laughs) yeah that's a really good point i didn't think of that that's awesome (laughs) yeah he's it's i don't know a master masterful uh storytelling here and i think besides all the amazing um all the scenes with this the spaceships are incredible uh Mm -hmm. just there's there's such good establishing shots they tell you so much story behind everything that's going on but i think uh probably my favorite scene is uh i don't know it's a tie it's a tie <laughs> because there's the there's the scene with him and and duke leto early on that establishes that sort of new relationship that hadn't you know where he's just that really good father-son uh relationship mm-hmm. that they have and that one's 
so fantastic because it really does tell such a deeper story uh, between a lot of them or between the two of them. And then the other one that's just a goofy one that really stood out to me was when um, Duncan Idaho brings back the stuff from the the Fremen and he's showing it off in the locker room, essentially. And oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, Gurney says, you've gone native. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just that whole scene, because it does such a good job of separating Paul and the the royals from the guys that serve them. And mm-hmm. you get this complete upstairs, downstairs feel. Yeah, like one scene and it's so well done because it's because you you see Paul trying to be a part of their world, but he's really just not. He's never going to be. Yeah, because he is fated to be, you know, a noble. He's got noble blood in him. He's just not going to be able to escape that. And it's so cleverly done and just quick. Like it's maybe a two minute scene tops. Yeah. (laughs) And it just does so much to to tell who these guys all are and where they all fit into things. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's it's Denis Villeneuve is a fantastic filmmaker. Like this is actual like the art of making a movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to like I I like the Marvel movies just fine, but I'm I've been kind of comparing this in my head to like some of the past several Marvel movies where they're they're fine, and I'm not like trying to dunk on them, but they feel so by the numbers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they, it's it's mm-hmm. nice to see a modern big budget science fiction film that feels like the person who made it was like, I'm going to make a movie, not I'm going to make the next installment of this never ending franchise. Cause Disney contracted me to. Right. And it's, it's funny because the commentary around it has been that this movie is going to do for all of the movies that come after it. What star Wars did for all of the movies that came after it. So we're talking mm-hmm. original star Wars, you know, in episode four, right. New hope, uh, that it so dramatically changed the way films were made that it really does hold this place as kind of a, a piece of cinematic history that was a touch point that everybody can b- turn back to and point and say, that's, that's influenced by star Wars. That's influenced by star Wars. Right. And people are saying that of this one, that, that this is going to be like, and it's movie critics that are saying it. It's so mm-hmm. it's, you know, I mean, they're not pressure or anything like that, but they do have, a, a feel of the pulse of the way things are going. And I, right. And if that's right, I hope they're right. <laughs> I hope so too. Cause it's, it's nice to see a movie slow down because that's been my primary problem with most of the new star Wars movies is that they don't take any time to like slow down and take a breath. It's just one action scene, one plot beat after another. And it doesn't like you, you're never able to like really get into the movie because everything is just so frenetic, especially, um, what was the last one? The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. Like you get that that first like 20 minute chunk is just like action scene after action scene, like cycling through the plot, which I think was essentially J.J. Abrams trying to rewrite the yeah. middle movie. But it's nice to have something where it is slow. And that's the fact that that's been a lot of people's biggest criticism is how slow this movie is. That's one of its main strong points for me, because I didn't want it to be an action movie. I wanted it to be a slow movie. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree there that it's it it's a movie that makes you it just sinks into you. And that's mm-hmm. what a good movie should do. And um, I don't did you see Blade Runner 2049? I have not yet, but I really need to watch it now because I love this one so much. Yeah, if you like this one, then 
you will definitely like uh, Blade Runner 2049 because it's got that same kind of vibe to it where it's just, it's big. It's a huge movie mm-hmm. that just kind of pours into you and you'll be thinking a- a- about it, you know, hours, hours after you leave the, the theater. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, I, 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 I hope that this is a predictor for kind of the way uh, things go. And it, it definitely, um, I wasn't expecting it to, I was expecting it to be a great movie and I was expecting it to be in my list of, you know, really good ones. I was not expecting it to fall up into the top five easily, possibly getting up towards that number one. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of, I need to, I need to see it a few more times before I commit to that, but it's really close. <laughs> nice. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely become one of my favorites. Um, it's almost, and I know this, this comparison is not just because it takes place in the desert, but it kind of reminded me of like Lawrence of Arabia mm-hmm. or one of those old, like old Hollywood epic movies. Like it was more in that mold than it was a modern action movie, which was, which I really liked. Yeah. I, yeah, it was, it, it definitely took everything to that next level and it, mm-hmm. and it was, it was exciting when it was exciting. And I think that's, yeah. that's a good action movie can do that where it's like, it gets really intense when it gets intense, but then it has those moments of just, okay, but these are, it's still about these characters. It's not about just what things were blowing up. It's about right. these characters that are having to live through this, you know, and what, and how they're dealing with it. And that was really, uh, it was well done. And I, yeah, I could gush about this movie forever. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what did you think of the soundtrack? I thought so it was bizarre and that, yeah, which it was good. I love Hans Zimmer. I think that he, I think that he brought to this all of the same intensity that, uh, that Villeneuve brought to it and Mm -hmm. it, it works, but it almost feels like it went too far into the kind of the tribal sounds for me where you get a lot of that, that really raw um, vocal singing. And I never really thought of the Fremen as being that kind of people, right? They're very quiet people. Right. It it felt more like, it almost felt like he was going for like Middle Eastern Islamic, like prayer call right. feel, which, which is fine because there's obviously that the Islamic influence on the Fremen culture. But I, I think the soundtrack would probably be my least favorite part of it. Like, cause it works fine in the context of the movie, but I, I've tried listening to it just on its own and it's, it's not something you can just sit down and listen to. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's I, so I, it's so atmospheric. Right. And, and, and it does tell the story. That's one of the things um, that this interview that I um, mean, when uh, Villeneuve was talking about the Gom Jabbar scene, he talks about working closely with Hans Zimmer on the score and mm-hmm. thinking about all of the different things that would go into the score and how the score really is part of the storytelling and so mm-hmm. yeah you you don't get a you don't get a separate soundtrack from it for sure yeah which which i think is fine for the kind of movie it is and it's it's also fun to see a sci-fi movie that doesn't fall back into i think what they were consciously trying to do was not make it a big orchestral traditional score because then it would feel like star wars right exactly and so you want to distance <laughs> yourself from that kind of thing yeah. It, and and it's hard, too, because, like I said, I, I think of the Fremen as a very quiet people. And so what would Fremen music sound like? Well, they 
I don't really see that they would have music, you know? And so yeah. that's kind of, it's difficult then to fill in that gap of like, okay, so what, what should the music sound like? Well, we're not going to have a soundtrack for this movie. That's not going to yeah. work. <laughs> no. So, yeah. And, and I, but I did like the bagpipes. The bagpipes were an excellent, <laughs> very, yeah, very was, beautiful. I was very happy to, happy to see that. <laughs> okay. Ever so, since, uh, I was going to say ever since the old, uh, or ever since Battlestar Galactica, I've been, uh, been happy to see bagpipe mixed with sci-fi. <laughs> yes. There's, it's great sci-fi uh, thing. The only, the only thing more sci-fi would be the theremin and that would be just weird. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> thousands of theremin playing at the same time just doesn't sound as cool as thousands of bagpipes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so he divvied this movie up into two chunks mm-hmm. and I think they did a really good job. I'm a little worried with how much story is left and there only being one more movie. I foresee the next part departing a lot more plot wise from the book than this one did. Like, I think this one did a good job of setting up, setting up everything, establishing the world. And the next one I think is going to be a quicker paced movie because they don't have to do all the establishing now. They can just tell the story. So I think it will. I think they'll be able to fit it in, but I think there's probably going to be a lot of rearranging of plot points to make it work better for a movie. Okay, I could see that. Yeah, because it's and I mean, mean, you are getting into the heavier action portions of the book itself in this next in the next segment. It's just a lot of the establishing the who he is with the Fremen is going to be interesting. That's going to be a really kind of i don't know and i was i was intrigued about it too because the book itself is divided in three parts and so i was wondering why not just do you know those three parts and they really did keep pretty close to book one like it's not far far into book two that they end up stopping this movie yeah i i know that uh Denis Valu has said that he wants he would like to do it as three parts. It sounds mm-hmm. like it's just going to be two, but I think that there's definitely an, enough material for three separate books or three separate movies. Yeah. Um, one interesting thing that I've heard people talk about, um, I think I saw this on Reddit, uh, was someone saying that they should combine the characters of Raban and Fade mm. because Fade's not been established yet, and so establishing him in the next part might be a bit harder to bring him in and then have him die at the same right in the same movie. Um, but I have seen that they're actually going to be casting that character. So that's not something that's going to happen, but it was an interesting idea. It'd be interesting to see sting reprise the role. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in the same be... outfit. <laughs> Very much. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that that's, that's going to be, I think the trickiest part to pull off just because it's a kind of dramatic moment when uh, Paul ends up fighting him in the end. Yeah. I don't know. Cause there's almost like a, there's almost like a star Wars ish. Uh, there is another to the, the Bene Gesserit, like, well, right. You know, we had this Kwisad Hadrek picked out and, you know, Jessica tipped the scale. So <laughs> he's almost like the evil Paul. Basically. Right. That's exactly, that's exactly what it yeah. comes across as. And so, you know, I'm I'm interested to see how they're going to establish that in in the single in a single movie, and then have it lead up to that kind of final confrontation between the two of them. Yeah, although it might work to their benefit not to have had him so far, and then to just kind of give backstory chunks into it 
and okay, Paul's overcome just being the Duke's son and getting caught in this trap. Now he actually has an enemy that we have that we see him coming up against, and that's what the second movie's all about. Yeah. I feel like that might be a good way to way to open the second part would be to introduce Fade at the mm-hmm. very beginning. Like have his his fight in the arena. Oh, that could be really you good. Maybe cause... use that as like the opener and then cut to Paul with the Fremen. Yeah. That's not a bad idea, actually. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Hmm. I was also a little bit disappointed that they gave away the sand riding the riding the sand know, right? at the very yeah. end. <laughs> like I thought it was great how you get uh Kynes, she gets the hooks out, but before she's able to do it, she right. gets killed. Um so that was a nice like foreshadowing and I kind of wish they had saved the big reveal for when Paul rides the sandworm. Right. Yeah, cuz that's a huge moment in the book where you're like, "Wait a minute, what?" <laughs> yeah. And and then they go take they take him out like, "Here's the big secret about the sandworms." <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. "Oh, okay. <laughs> that's kind of cool." Uh yeah, so that was that was an interesting I thought that was an interesting uh kind of shift to to the way that they're handling it. But I, I can see it too. Just, you know, you want to leave, leave the audience with a big wow moment right at the end. Right. And, and there wasn't much left after he had just fallen into Fremen culture and they're walking off into the sunset sort of like, where do we, you know, what do we do to really kind of explosively end this one? And it's like, oh, well, let's yeah. do the, do the sandworm thing. And there's still a lot of secrets about the sandworms that are kind of left, you know? So I think the, and, and those are more impactful to the plot as a whole, like with his right. premonitions and the way he thinks of Arrakis and, and what he's going to do with it. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But I'm very excited for it. Oh man. I, I wish he'd gotten three movies. Honestly, I just wish he'd like, I wish they had gone ahead and said, yeah, just do all three movies and we'll put them out. <laughs> and just his, and I'm, I'm very glad that they're having a second one because that would have been an absolute travesty to have this movie come out and then that's it and nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> and especially with uh the pandemic shutting down theaters the way it has i, I was really worried that it was not gonna make as much as it needed to yeah no no i and i but i do hope that the i honestly hope that the, the movie critics are right that this is going to fundamentally shift the way that we approach movies uh going forward this would be really i really nice. hope so because i feel like we're in need of kind of the the paradigm shift in terms of refreshing how movies have been done, um, especially science fiction. Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but I was, I've been trying to watch the foundation TV show on Apple TV mm-hmm. and I think I've gotten through maybe episode five and it's just, it is interminably boring and in, it just feels very, very like generic sci-fi. Like there's nothing interesting about it. All the visuals, like it's a well-made show and it looks good, but it just feels like, you could have slapped any name on this and you didn't have to call it foundation. You could have made up any name for it. Cause it's just a generic sci-fi. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, yeah, I've been largely unimpressed with it as well. Yeah. Kind of, you're right. And, but I, and that's kind of the challenge with sci-fi is like, is that a lot of these stories have been told and, mm-hmm. um, you, you have to be really careful to carve out that story's unique space. Uh, because foundation is its own thing and it has a lot of merit on its own. And right. I think that it feels kind of with the show, like what they've lost is the thread of the fact that the entire science fiction in that series is built around a lie. Yeah. And and that's kind of the beauty of the whole series is that it's, 
the great lie that launched the entire galaxy into right. you know the what it is and if you if you remove that or if you stray too far from that and just get into the wonder of everything then the themes kind of fall apart so a lot of the other yeah. themes in this series fall apart too um and that's when i think you know this one does so well is that it, it maintains that central theme of fate and of how much we choose our own destiny and whether we can uh, learn from the mistakes of the people that came before us. And it really just pulls those in and, and makes them uh, just visually stunning and interesting and keeps the characters at the forefront, which is really hard in sci-fi sometimes, but very important. Right. Yeah. This accomplishes the same thing that I've said the book does where it is not just a good science fiction book. It's a, it's a, good work of literature this is the same kind of thing it's not just a good science fiction movie it's a good movie right very much so yeah and i that's why i think it's challenging my first my 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 number one favorite movie of all time is thin red line which is a war movie but is a Mm. great movie that just happens to be about war and that's kind of where this one is it's a great movie that just happens to be about a time period ten thousand years in the future (laughs) right (laughs) so yeah all right. Anything else from you? Final thoughts? No, I'm just very pleased with it and cannot wait for the second one to come out. Yeah, I'm super excited. I'm counting down the days. I'm like, yes, yeah. come on. <laughs> I need to go see it in the theaters again. I haven't seen I only saw it the one time and I'm like, I'm itching to go see it again. I just haven't, oh, had, yeah. haven't had space to be able to go do it yet. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Did you see it on IMAX or... Yeah, I actually saw it twice in the theaters, um, IMAX both times, because it's the kind of movie that needs that. And then I watched it one additional time on HBO. Oh, OK, cool. Yeah, I haven't seen it on the small screen yet, but I, I'd be intrigued yeah. at that because um, we, we have gotten our TV set up to do HD uh, display. And mm-hmm. man, watching the original Star Wars in HD, which my wife lovingly calls Hallmark Vision. Uh, Oh, nice. it yeah. makes everything kind of feel like a hallmark movie right uh yeah and and watching the start the original star wars and that was was very intriguing <laughs> it very very much changes the way you think about the movie but but it's it's cool because it actually holds up which was really interesting and a lot of the computer graphics movies do not like once you get into that yeah hd that's realm a, that's a problem i've had with all of the remastered uh star trek tv shows mm. is that i remember in my head in the 90s on the tiny little tube TV and standard definition looked great. And then all of a sudden you can see every single seam. You can see the screws that they use to put the ship together. Right. It's like, Oh, this is a, this is a TV show set. <laughs> right. That's, that's, that's when it's bad is when you feel like they're on a TV show set and you're like, no, nah, yeah. nope. can't do this anymore. <laughs> Got to yep. suspend the disbelief, suspend the disbelief. <laughs> all right. Well, that's it from us. Uh, what did you think about the 2021 movie Dune? Uh, be sure to email us or comment on our Facebook or Twitter page and let us know. Uh, you can email us any feedback by finding StarQuest on Facebook at facebook.com slash Media and on Twitter at SQPN. We'd love to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of movies and TV, especially Tim L., Michael M., Jesse K., Megan F., and Patrick W. Their generous donations and those of everyone at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of movies and TV and all the shows here at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. 
Also, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or on the SQPN YouTube channel. And make sure to ring the bell there so that you get updates when we uh, have another episode. To find previous episodes of Secrets of Movies and TV Shows, please visit sqpn.com slash secrets of movies and TV shows. And Jack, I just got a graphic novelization of Dune for my 12-year-old, who's a reluctant reader. So I think, honestly... We can cover it again in the meantime while we're waiting for this next movie to come out. Like, oh, yeah. Hopefully not too many years from now. <laughs> but, we got uh, all the sequels, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if you get a chance to, to find it, it's really good. It's a great graphic novel, so I definitely recommend it. And um, maybe, nice. maybe it that'll be the next one we do. All right, everyone, thanks for joining, and thanks, Jack, for geeking out with me over this movie. Thanks. It's good to be here. Once again, I'm Thomas Senherho. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV on StarQuest. <laughs>